Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker Podcast, part of the Calling All Beans Cabin Network. My name's Frank and let's get cracking once again with an actual Christmas episode. Um, despite my sort of um, Mandela effect uh, when I was putting this show together, um, for some reason I convinced myself that we'd done um, two of these uh, ghost of Christmas past, uh, present and future but actually as it turns out this is the second one so you you may get slightly confused in the course of the episode if you hear me talking about this being the third one uh, I obviously had confused myself along the way as well some kind of bizarre thing had happened where I was convinced uh, that this was the third one but in fact um, as, as Dave uh, corrected me on uh, in a signal message this is actually in fact the second time we've done this and this this Christmas festive episode is in fact going to be based on the uh, Charles Dickens A Christmas Carol, uh, which if anybody's not familiar with it, it's definitely a good festive watch. There's various different versions of the film, um, obviously the book as well, if you would like to go back to the original story and, and check that out. Uh, but essentially it's a, it's a kind of a grumpy character uh, called Ebenezer Scrooge who is visited by the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present and Christmas future, uh, who, who basically convinces Scrooge to to see the error of his ways and um, come around to the joys of Christmas. Now, obviously, um, we're a UFO podcast here and we'll do UFO-related things. And uh, what we're going to be doing here is the ghost of UFOs past, UFOs present and UFOs future. And if you imagine in your mind's eye a bit of a Scrooge-like character, uh, we'll call him Rontological. If you know, you know. And uh, Ron is, is going to be uh, a, a debunker type of character who's, who's not at all convinced by the reality of the UFO uh, issue. And we'll shortly be hearing from some ghostly visitors uh, going into the, the details of the UFOs from yesteryear. Uh, UFOs where we're at currently and of course UFOs in the future and, and where we may be headed so some of these people you will recognize um, you, I imagine in the episode description it will already have the names but um, you, you're shortly about to hear from uh, the ghost of UFOs past and very very pleased and it's very nice thing to put together these Christmas episodes and uh, makes me very thankful for all of the really amazing knowledgeable people that I've managed to connect with since starting the podcast um, a few years ago now believe it or not uh, time really does fly by so um we'll shortly get into the first ghostly visit i hope ron to logical i hope you steal yourself for what you are about to hear so with all of that said let's hear from the ghost of ufo's past right so i'd like to to welcome back the ghost of ufo's past once again making a i think it's the third uh returning appearance as, as the ghost of ufo's past if i'm not mistaken so welcome graham rendell great to have you back on again 
Thanks, Frank. Yeah, and I am the ghost of Christmas. Sorry, UFOs, Christmas past. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. And it it always, I like to be a little bit ahead of the game. It always feels a bit odd saying Merry Christmas when it's uh, only the very beginning of the festive season as we actually record this, but um, Merry Christmas to you. And I'm sure sure you've got some uh, interesting snippets of, of UFOs past that you'd like to go into. So whenever you're ready. Okay. Uh, yeah. Merry, the- Merry Christmas to you, Frank, as well. It's definitely the start of the festive season. Our village is now bedecked with lights and, and Christmas trees, etc. So it's definitely time to do this. Um, so I've got th- three short stories from World War II. Um, so people would have heard me discussing these before, but these give you an idea of some other things that happened before the, the start of the accepted modern day phenomenon. So the first one, we're going to go back to about June 1944. So this is around about D-Day, but it's not in Normandy. It's in Italy. Um, and this is something that was seen in extreme altitude. Uh, jump forward to 1995, and a KUFOS investigator, uh, Max Calderwood, was contacted by a, a former U.S. Army Air Force fighter pilot who had served in Italy during World War II and in 1944. Uh, and back then, this 26-year-old Walt Humphrey, uh, Humphrey had been flying Lockheed P-38 Lightnings uh, with a first fighter group out of Salsosa Airfield in Italy. And on an unspecified day, I believe the witness couldn't exactly recall when it was in, in June 44. this particular pilot had been leading a flight of three P-38 Lightnings on a training flight over the Adriatic, so that's the, the, the water uh, lying between Italy and, and, and what was then Yugoslavia. Uh, and he was heading northwards with his two colleagues along the east coast of Italy. And just off the coast north of Bari, the following encounter with a large round object, silver in colour, took place. And in his words, the object appeared directly above us. I estimated my height at the time to be 33,000 feet. It was originally at 50,000 feet, then descended to about 40,000 and stayed with us for about three minutes. Over the radio, we discussed what it could be as it was very large. Suddenly, it accelerated to the north, disappearing in a second or two. Now, after landing, Humphrey and his colleagues were questioned by his commanding officer, Colonel Robert B. Richard, as their sighting was just so unusual. Uh, but the conclusion everybody drew at that time was that was some kind of German secret weapon, even though that object was three times the size of the apparent moon. Again, nobody's been able to work out what it was since. We jump forward from uh, June to December 1944, and an RAF night fighter crew encountering a strange light in the early hours of the 18th of December 44, and this is over central Belgium. Actually, you can find these details in the autobiography of a, of a, a navigator called Dennis Gosling, who flew bow fighters, uh, who flew in bow fighters and mosquitoes during World War II. And his book's called Night Fighter Navigator. And this is where I got that information from. Um, and it actually occupies a long paragraph in the book. So it's something that clearly was um, relevant uh, and quite important to, to this guy when he was writing of his life history. Um, unfortunately, when you actually look up the official records of his unit, then you'll find that um, there's no mention of this particular case. But that's not unusual because a lot of these official logs, these official mission logs, didn't really contain um, reports of the things that people saw for, for one reason or another. But actually, uh, Des Gosling, this is what he, he said that he saw. 
Together with his pilot, Flight Lieutenant Gordon Hayhurst, they were both part of 604 Squadron, uh, which was based at RAF Odium in, in Hampshire during all of December 44. They were equipped with Mosquito NF-13s, um, uh, and they were flying each night on intruder missions over Belgium and northern France, looking for targets of opportunity. Mostly German aircraft were flying at night. Um, now, they were flying along what they called a, a patrol line, which had been established on the other side of what they called the, the Brussels Gun Corridor, which was a line of anti-aircraft guns. Uh, part of the Allied anti-aircraft defences defending the Belgian capital, which had already been uh, liberated by the Allies. Um, the guns were actually necessary because of a, a spate of a German V1 flying bomb attacks on, on Brussels and Antwerp, which had started a couple of months earlier. Um, but at this particular night, uh, both Hayhurst and Gosling had taken off and they were, um, they'd already carried out a 20-minute long uh, flying test earlier that day, but then they'd taken off and they were going to um, fly over, over Belgium uh, for, for this patrol mission. And at 2.35 on the morning of the 18th, their Mosquito um, left Odium, bound for the gun, gun corridor, and halfway across this particular area uh, near Brussels, the, the crew was startled by what Gosling described as a brilliant white light, which suddenly appeared out of nowhere and proceeded to hold station at a point just forward and slightly to port of their Mosquito, despite the aircraft flying along in the skies at about 300 miles an hour. Now, Gosling didn't mention picking up the object on his radar set, so presumably there'd been no warning at all. Uh, but although they'd never witnessed any light generating such an intensity before, the pilot and the navigator couldn't help noticing that it didn't actually light up their aircraft for some strange reason, nor the clouds around them. It was just a very, very bright light, but it didn't seem to radiate light. Uh, both the, the pilot and the navigator spent the next few minutes trying to, you know, sort of just discuss amongst themselves as to what this thing was, uh, even though we're still maintaining station on their aircraft as they were flying through the, the skies over Belgium. And then after about five minutes, it suddenly disappeared. In a, an attempt to actually check to see whether it was behind them or whether it was underneath them, um, Hayhurst waggled the wings of the aeroplane, so he basically tipped it from side to side a little bit, just so they could check either side of their aeroplane as they looked out of each side of the windows. Um, but just as they were then asking each other what had happened, where it had gone, it suddenly reappeared, again off their starboard wingtip, um, holding station there for a few more minutes before it finally then disappeared for good. Now, they were quite unsettled by this, but they still managed to complete their patrol mission and landed back at base at about 0620. Um, they were debriefed by their intelligence officer, um, but they, they again, none of them knew what this thing was. So this was a com another complete unknown. But this is the 18th December 1944, so we're right in the middle of the so-called Foo Fighter sightings that were affecting the American night fighter squadrons based in Europe at that time. And the last of these uh, trio of reports from World War II uh, will jump forward again to March 1945. So this is getting towards the end of the war in Europe. And we're now going to turn our attention to a RAF reconnaissance pilot, a Spitfire pilot who was from 541 Squadron, which were flying Spitfire Mark, uh, Mark, 9, uh, Mark 11s. And um, he was um, in an aircraft called PL-699, sorry, beg your pardon, Mark 19s. And he was flying, or he'd been sent a mission to fly over the Ruhr Valley. Uh, at around 11 o'clock in the morning, on the morning of 26th of March, 1945. Now, according to the pilot, who was called uh, Robson, James Robson, 
He, um, he was flying at about 17,000 feet over the Ruhr, heading towards Berlin at about 360 miles an hour, when he spotted a pink light ahead of him in the sky. Um, now, he thought that the Germans were using some kind of new flak weapon, um, and he assumed they, they were tracking his aircraft on radar and set, sent something up uh, to try and bring him down. He eventually caught up with it, uh, this object, this pink object, and slowly started to overtake it. And as he passed it on its port side, he realized that this light was actually a ball-shaped object, some five or six feet in diameter. Um, and it was heading east, the direction he was going, and it was traveling based, based on the speed he was overtaking it. He reckoned it was doing about 300 miles an hour. So it wasn't sitting still in midair. Um, so it wasn't any kind of flak device. It wasn't a, a, a flak explosion uh, or, or a parachute flare or something like that. Um, but as he overtook it, he then lost sight of it as it fell behind him. Um, again, there's nothing in the official records, just have the pilot's word for this. Uh, but when he got back, again, there'll be a, a debriefing and nobody knew what this was. So three pilots th seeing three different uh, shaped, uh, different colors uh, and different kind of types of light over the skies in Europe. And nobody knew what these things were. And of course, this is years before the start of the UFO, the modern day UFO phenomenon. Yeah, well, epic tales of uh, of long ago once again, uh, Graham. So thank you very much. And um, it, it feels like a good uh, time to just point out about your various books as well that are, that are available, which is really, to, I, honestly, and I'm not just saying this because you're here on the podcast, but it's an epic series uh, of, of books. And um, just for anybody who's, who's not um, aware of these that it starts with and uh, i'm not sure what order you release these but I'll, I'll do them in chronological order um ufos before roswell european foo fighters 1940 to 1945 then the next book um dawn of the flying saucers 1946 to 1949 flying saucer fever aerial ufo encounters 1950 to 1952 and then intercept and identify aerial ufo encounters 1953 to 1954 so it's it's such a cool thing that you've got them I in you know that you can read through them in the order that they actually happened as well and uh, a little birdie told me that there might be a new one uh, on the way so what there any is information you can <laughs> give us about that there yeah, I've just completed another book. So this one's to do with 1955 and 1956 aerial sightings. Um, it's now finished. It's just waiting artwork and a forward. And once those are received and put together, then it will be released, hopefully in time for Christmas. Excellent. So um, if you're like myself and you've collected all the ones so far, that'll be a nice addition <laughs> to the collection. Uh, and I'd also say as well, anybody uh, particularly... Uh, from the UK, uh, particularly in the north, if if anybody is around uh, any of the the various things that Graham speaks at, it's well worth trying to catch one of his. I don't know if you've got anything planned upcoming in that regard, but I've seen a few of your presentations on this topic, and they're always they're always great. So uh, hopefully, you plan on doing some more of those in the future. I do, yeah. I've been signed up for an event in Hull uh, next September, so uh, that'll be the first one I've got booked in so far. But I'm sure there'll be others before that. So yeah. Excellent. And yeah, thanks for, for going through those cases as well. Fascinating. I always have a, an image in my mind of people sat around eating the, the leftovers from the Christmas dinner, listening to you talk about those fascinating incidents from the past. <laughs> so uh, yeah, thanks again, Graham. Really appreciate you, you taking some time and um, yeah, Merry Christmas to you.
Merry Christmas, Frank. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Cheers. So there we have it, the ghost of UFOs past with some extremely interesting information from the the archives there. And uh, I really can't recommend enough to check out uh, Graham Rendell's books, all of the jokey festivities aside, uh, unbelievably well-researched and well-put-together series of books going into some of those really fascinating uh, historical cases. And before Rontological gets the chance to compose himself, all of a sudden another ghostly apparition appears. And this time, the ghost of Christmas present makes an appearance. So with that said, let's hear from him. Okay, so I'd like to welcome back into the into the fold once again, making a return appearance, the ghost of Christmas present, Dave Smethurst. How are you doing, Dave? I'm feeling pretty ghostly, Frank. I must tell you, I can feel the spiritual forces flowing through my body now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, technically, you're the ghost of UFOs present rather than the Christmas present, but Christmas UFOs, <laughs> it's all its all the same. So uh, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on the, the, the state of affairs currently regarding UFOs then, Mr. Ghost? Please, now transport yourself to a similar pitiful garret to the one we visited last year, where we can see the rather worried figure of Ron Tological, editor of the struggling Confinement Times. Strewn across the floor of this rather humble abode are press releases from the DOD, assuring Ron that if our armed forces have better equipment and more observant pilots, all this talk of unidentified anomalous phenomena we exposed for the nothing burger it is. As the clock strikes 12, Ron shakily takes another drink of scotch from the nearly empty tumbler in his hand and reassures himself that he will be doing the right thing by accepting an unusually large commission from two kindly dark-suited gentlemen to write a dubious article debunking UAPs. This will be syndicated in a number of mainstream publications. As he decides he's doing the right thing and reaches for his mobile phone to accept the commission, he feels a strange change in the atmosphere. Amazingly, Ron sees his mobile phone leap off the table and start to take the shape of a large tube of toothpaste, from which toothpaste is flowing everywhere, unstoppably. Slowly, the strange image begins to take the shape of a large, burly man, who after a moment begins to speak in a Mancunian accent and says, Rontological, I am the ghost of Christmas present, and tonight you're in for a shock. 2023 started with the balloon going up literally, with a large Chinese one spotted over US airspace, alongside a number of, number of other UAPs, some seemingly stranger than others. The president was called weak for allowing this to happen. Jets were dispatched to shoot the objects down. Politicians wanted briefings, and some, who already appear to have had earlier briefings, declared, rather enigmatically, that a cow was out of the barn. So in one failed swoop, Balloon Gate, as some refer to it, seemed to concentrate all the underlying tension around UAPs into something nearing hysteria in the mainstream media. With presidential and military spokespersons declaring they were not sure what they were, and it emerged that somehow 
the vast array of US military equipment was rather mysteriously, or conveniently, depending on your point of view, was not set to detect UAPs. This provoked an admission from the US President's spokesman that the President was on top of the need to protect US airspace. And in fact, he had set up a special UAP investigation office, Arrow, to do just that. So in one unfortunate incident, the topic of UAPs leaped from the fringe into the President's acknowledged agenda and onto the political conveyor belt. Throughout 2023, it was to keep appearing on this conveyor belt, like some unclaimed piece of baggage that nobody really wanted to pick up. Fortunately, in the end, people were forced not only to pick it up, but to fight over its contents. True to UAP form, Balloongate had a mysterious final chapter which remains unsolved to this day. The wreckage, the wreckage from the most enigmatic of the craft shot down over frozen ice near the unfortunately named town of Dead Horse, Alaska, could not be found by the combined might of the US military. Despite the military claiming that they had not been able to locate the wreckage and that anyone suggesting they had was indeed flogging a dead horse, rumours persisted of the retrieval of a very strange craft indeed, which had been witnessed by both civilians and military personnel. This strange sting in the tail was in many ways symbolic of the cycle of less than credible denial and inconclusive proof that seems to encapsulate the position on UAP reality. However, this cosy stalemate was to begin to crumble rather alarmingly, for some, in 2023. After an admittedly poor start of a year, team non-disclosure seemed to recover some ground with the publication of a second public UAP report, which seems to be long on method and short on explanations, for the objects and their inexplicable performance, implying a prosaic explanation would be found. This was followed up by an equally complacent briefing by Dr Sean Kirkpatrick to the Senate Armed Services Committee, again saying that all was well, progress was being made, and most importantly, but he had seen no evidence at all of an extraterrestrial origin for the craft. Things seemed to be going well for Team Non-Disclosure, who were encouraged by Dr Kirkpatrick's uncompromising performance, tapping firmly sealed toothpaste tubes in their top pockets and winking at the mainstream media and assorted sceptics. However, it seems they, and particularly Dr Kirkpatrick, have miscalculated infuriating the many whistleblowers who had already come forward to tell Arrow about what they knew of UAP and secret government programmes. Not only that, but the blatant bad faith attempt to try to roll back UAP disclosure has also convinced the forces supporting disclosure across the military, intelligence community and government that it was time for an equal and opposite reaction. So along came David Grush, and things have never quite been the same since. Coming out first in an article by Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keane on the respected debrief site, and then followed up with an hour-long TV interview with Ross Colfart on News Nation, Grush made the shocking st statements. 
NHI beings are real, non-human intelligence to you and me. The craft we see in the sky are from an NHI civilization or source. The US government has both NHA craft and bodies in its possession that they have retrieved. The US government has been engaged for decades in secret crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs, working with private aerospace companies and funded outside of political oversight. There have been attempts to bring down these craft, capture them, as well as combat encounters. There have also been instances of UAPs harming human beings through malevolent action. Amazingly, there has been some kind of contact with some NHIs and perhaps even agreements reached with them. Astounding. Alongside this, there has reportedly been a secret NHI tech arms race with hostile competitor nations to retrieve and glean the secrets from recovered NHI craft. There is a core, secret and unaccountable group within the US government who coordinates the UAP problem. And this group has conducted a decades-long campaign to keep this secret from politicians and the US public with active misinformation campaigns. This has included large-scale illegality in terms of the misappropriation of funds and even more shockingly, the intimidation, persecution, and sometimes murder of people to keep this secret. At this point, people usually say, so what? Turn the page of their newspaper, as no substantive proof could be produced. But the Grush revelations were of a different order of magnitude. Apart from being a highly credible and cleared senior intelligence officer, with access to the most sensitive US secrets. Rush had himself conducted a four-year investigation into the extent of UAP secrecy, as he himself could not believe what he was finding. In the course of this, he interviewed over 40 similarly credentialed intelligence and defence operatives, many of which had direct experience of working on the craft and had detailed programme information. In addition, he gathered a large amount of written video and signals information and the names of spe specific programs, locations, activities, as well as the names of the staff who ran them. Following intense efforts to stop his investigations and threats from this core UAP secrecy group, Rush submitted a whistleblower complaint to the Intelligence Community Inspector General, the ICIG. On receipt of this, the ICIG conducted their own investigation, verifying the information he had gathered and interviewing the witnesses Grush had spoken to and others he knew nothing about. At the end of this, the ICIG came to the astonishing and unambiguous conclusion that Grush's claims were credible and urgent and passed these on to the Congress for investigation. What then followed was that Grush himself gave over 12 hours of detailed testimony in closed sessions to both Houses of Congress on the programmes and all the matters he had raised to the ICIG. Not only that, but many other whistleblowers who have worked in these programmes and directly on recovered NHI tech had also testified to Congress. 
so largely unknown to anyone outside of intelligence and congressional circles, Russian colleagues have been quietly cutting a swathe through the layers of secrecy, denial and illegality that have been perpetrated by elements of the US government in relation to UAPs for decades. This culminated in his public interviews. The cow was certainly out of the barn now. The most immediate thing this did was to produce a step change in both understanding and future focus for the wider UFO community and many reasonable people from the government, military, intelligence community and academia. Here we now had very strong evidence, strong enough to stand up in a court of law or be reported in mainstream media, that not only were NHIs real, but we had in our possession proof of this and were secretly working on this evidence. Such was the corroboration of what was reported, it seemed hard for any reasonable person to continue to sit on the fence and not think there was a there, there. To further confirm this, there was the curious case of the dog that didn't bark, the particular dog in question being the Department of Defence. You would have expected if there was nothing to this, the DOD would have immediately come out to say this was not true, there were no such programmes, and that Grush was delusional. Easy to do, one would have thought. But instead there was, de there was a deafening silence, no answers to direct questions, and no comments on Grush at all. This was then followed by a masterclass in sophistry from the DOD's official spokesperson, who sought to use very ambiguous sentences to deny any evidence of UAP reality, which referenced only what the Arrow Office had found, not what the wider DOD knew. Since Dr Kirkpatrick's appearance in May, and his consistent lack of progress and denials, people began to suspect that Arrow had not found anything, as it had actively not been looking, or following up on the leads it had been given. Denials only mentioning Arrow merely served to further confirm for many that Arrow had been set up as a barrier to, dis to disclosure and as a convenient vehicle to allow the DOD to plausibly deny any UAP knowledge. Firmly on the back foot, the forces of non-disclosure were further rocked by two pieces of legislation coming from the Senate that were clearly a response to the whistleblower allegations they had heard and had obviously found credible. This could be seen from the amazing language they used, both in respect of NHI itself and NHI tech, which left no doubt that they believed these existed, were in US government possession, and that they were intent on tracking both the tech and the bodies down. The first was the Intelligence Authorization Act, which said that any program that funded UAP work was not explicitly authorised by Congress. Would no, longer be, would no longer be funded, and that any corporation or other organisation had to notify Arrow about this and make the materials available for inspection. A time-limited amnesty from prosecution was offered to any organisation that did this. Crucially, this piece of legislation turned the disclosure tables, firmly putting the onus on the secret keepers to disclose what they knew or face penalty rather than Congress or investigators having to uncover it. 
The second piece of legislation, the UAP Disclosure Act, was even more impactful, effectively setting up the architecture for an orderly disclosure and a new body to do this that would replace Arrow as the main investigative vehicle. This included provisions to set up an independent record review panel reporting to the President to gradually release UAP files from all agencies. The intent was clear here to move control over UAP secrecy back into politically accountable hands. It also gave the power to subpoena documents from any non-compliant agency and give the power of a government to sequester any NHI material held in private hands. The second bid was fronted up very visibly. Bill was fronted up very visibly by the Democratic leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer. For many of us clearly indicated that this approach to UAP disclosure via the review panel was supported by the White House itself. If true, this was likely enlightened self-interest by the White House. It perhaps could see that the intransigence of the DOD and wider forces of non-disclosure was leading to the very real possibility of major uncontrollable leaks from frustrated whistleblowers. This could threaten both the administration and wider confidence in the US government itself. Clearly, an orderly method of disclosure would be in everyone's interest given the alternatives. Whilst reeling, the forces of non-disclosure seem to get more organised. First mounting a disgraceful attack on Grush due to his autism and combat PTSD, then planting a series of ill-informed and anti-UAP articles and attacks on the whole credibility of the evidence being brought forward. The attacks on Grush backfired, causing outrage amongst the people they were aimed at, and really just served to underline how out of touch and unsavoury the people who thought these allegations were so terrible. Similar to the media and web disinformation and planted articles had very little effect, being short on detail and lacking credibility. The fight back was on, but they have failed to lay a glove on Grush. And as they continued to reel and miss, Grush and two other military whistle witnesses stepped forward to testify publicly at an historic televised public hearing held by the Congressional Oversight Committee on UAP and US government secrecy. There, under oath, the amazed array of politicians listened to Grush calmly detail the incredible allegations he was making and saying he could give specific details to Congress, to people, to Congress people in a skiff, a secure room. Alongside him, his two military pilots with impeccable, were two military pilots with impeccable reputations. They described the incredible and non-human performance of the craft they had encountered. This was to be the high point of the year for UAP disclosure and for many a crossing of the Rubicon that the non-disclosure cabal could not reverse. People in Congress now knew. However, this cabal did not seem willing to throw the towel in at that point and on that very day they sought to remove Grush's security clearance and thus his ability to brief these inquisitive politicians in a secure setting. Just to be sure, they also denied both same politicians access to the skiff in the Congress to allow Grush to speak to them. 
While this unprecedented behaviour further infuriated politicians and pro-disclosure camp, this did not deter the DOD and intelligence community from ramping up their efforts to undermine Grush and move towards disclosure. Apart from the occasional petulant outburst from Sean Kirkpatrick, Weezer worded denials and Nuffinberger reports, the fightback was largely conducted in the background. This included a strange lack of further predicted congressional and Senate hearings, an unexpected move to ramp up Arrow activities to counter the criticism of its inactivity, and most of all, a complete and inexplicable silence from the mainstream media on what should be front-page news. The media themselves had reported on the subject more than they had previously, and some had openly questioned what was happening. But after the hearings, whatever coverage there was, dropped off a cliff. Apart from a few obviously planted anti-UAP articles and social media interventions, there was complete radio silence. The only explanation of this, for many, is that the intelligence community were exerting huge pressure on journalists, editors and media owners not to cover this story. Moving into autumn, a strange war of attrition occurred, where Arrow and the DOD doggedly stuck to their nothing-to-see-here narrative, whilst occasionally taking pot shots at whistleblowers from journalists. Pressure was heaped on them by these targets, on these targets with a number of tit-for-tat reactions to this behaviour. For instance, when Dr Kirkpatrick released a particularly poor public UAP update, the secret group, the secret group of legacy cricket keep, secret keepers he had set up to guide Arrow's efforts were exposed. We have also seen the increasingly coordinated release of stories and articles about legacy programs and historical misdeeds, one of the most prominent of which was a stunning account by the senior intelligence official James Lukatsky of a recovered NHI craft that the US government had recovered and managed to get access to. Liberation Times also published a string of expose stories which showed massive conflicts of interest, senior figures in the defence and intelligence community having relation to investigating government activity on UAPs, having not only worked on these programmes, but worked on covering them up as well. This pressure kept on building, and saw the now beleaguered Dr Kirkpatrick having to leave his post with his credibility in tatters and his position untenable. No doubt the last piece of direction he took from his legacy programme advisory board was to take the well-paid position in the private aerospace infrastructure they control. With Kirkpatrick gone, the pressure mounting on secret keepers and the UAP legislation passed in the Senate, a consensus had arisen that the orderly path to disclosure was the best way forward to reveal the truth in a measured way that did not thrust society into turmoil or compromise national security. As part of this, we saw the recent the rise of new civilian organisations aimed at helping the academic, scientific and corporate mainstream embrace the opportunities disclosure will offer and support the political system to implement an orderly disclosure. The Seoul Foundation and New Paradigm Institute are both examples of this, as is the broadening of the objective of existing civilian UAP organisations 
such as the Galileo Project, the SCU, and the Americans for Safe Aerospace. This is in stark contrast to the continuing efforts of NASA in 2023 to downplay UAP reality and its rumoured knowledge about it to escape public censure. This is regrettable as NASA has perhaps the most potential to help the public engage with this new reality. The alternative, as the pro-disclosure movement have made quite clear, would be significant leaks of classified UAP information resulting in the uncontrolled disclosure which nobody really wanted, but was deemed necessary to remove the unelected secret keepers in the national interest. But everyone had perhaps underestimated the fact for this cabal that they had no option but to keep fighting. And, as so often in the past, they waited patiently until the Senate bill was being reconciled in Congress and used four key Republican political figures, heavily funded by the defence industry, to gut all the key UA provisions from the NDAA. While some minor things remained, this had effectively rendered the bill useless. There was, and still is, a huge uproar about this brazen attempt to thwart the democratic will of both houses through effective bribery which now threatens to lead to the uncontrolled disclosure that nobody wants. The forces of non-disclosure no doubt prefer the chaos this will create and their ability to hide within it. As this was happening, Liberation Times reported on a secret CIA-led crash retrieval program which could track and retrieve crashed NHI craft, immediately spiriting them away to a secretly funded private industry programs beyond the oversight of Congress. Ironically, this story confirmed not only the current operation of the secret UAP programme, but its long-suspected control by the DOE, CIA, the US Air Force and private industry. But in removing the UAP provisions as they did, the forces of non-disclosure did at least confirm very publicly there is something very significant to cover up on UAPs. And their role in this is now plain for all to see. So as controlled disclosure becomes a diminishing possibility in 2023, it seems the increasingly visible battle with the UAP secret keepers will continue and escalate, with the pro-disclosure faction feeling they must force the other side to the table with more pointed revelations. Removing the possibility of disclosure via the NDAA provisions has not altered their conviction. Disclosure is still necessary to do. So, Ron, do you still think writing that article is a good idea? Do you need any further convincing about the reality of NHI, their craft, and the decades-long campaign to keep this secret from the people and their representatives, effectively denying humanity fundamental knowledge about the reality we live in? And our place within it? From the look on your face, I think maybe not. So, Ron, still want to make that call? You want to hear a little more? So be it. And with those words ringing in his ears, the rather long-winded ghost of Christmas present departed, leaving Ron looking at his phone and staring pensively at the clock as it started to chime. 
Okay, so there we have it. Uh, a fantastic rundown of well, current affairs of UFOs from uh, my old mate Dave, who obviously ever anybody who listens to the pod will recognise Dave. Um, and um, yeah, big thanks to Dave. Very much appreciated there. And you can look forward to uh, me and Dave have got plenty of things in the works actually for 2024 in terms of a series of episodes. And um, I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that because I want to leave it as a little bit of a surprise. Um, but we're shortly about to hear from the ghost of UFOs future and uh, somebody who you may have heard on the podcast as a guest actually throughout 2023 as we move into 2024 um, who better to give us a bit of a rundown of, of what we might perhaps um, expect and um, uh, with that said let's get stuck into hearing from the ghost of UFOs future Okay, so I'd like to welcome back to the show, actually making a, a return appearance here, and this time as the ghost of UFO's future, uh, Matt Ford of the Good Trouble Show. How are you, Matt? I'm very well, Frank. Thanks for having me back. I'm, I'm surprised you had me back. I, I'm, I usually don't get invited back to the parties, so <laughs> I feel honored to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome anytime, <laughs> and um, yeah, especially on a, a festive occasion such as this. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, thanks for finding some time to fit this into your, no doubt, very busy and hectic uh, festive schedule, as, as we all have this time of year. Really appreciate it. So we've We've already heard um, from the ghost of UFOs past, the great Graham Rendell, and the ghost of UFOs present, Mr. Dave Smethurst. So as, All right, as the ghost of UFOs future, um, what are your general thoughts on how things UFO-related could play out in this upcoming year of 2024? Hmm, let's see, UFO future. So um, I, so I have, a, I have a couple of thoughts. Well, uh, firstly, what we have to look forward to is this op-ed from David Grush. If I were to predict, uh, being the ghost of uh, UFO future, I would say that this, this op-ed is going to um, get a lot of attention. I think it will probably ruffle some feathers. I would predict that it will get the attention of members of Congress more so than, uh, hopefully more so than, than what we have seen so far. I think uh, certainly Congressman Tim Burchett and, and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, I think will will pay close attention to this. Uh, the second thing that we have used, uh, we have to look forward to for UFO future from the ghost of UFO uh, future uh, or whatever I'm supposed to be. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the other thing we have to look forward to, and it will be interesting to see what comes out of this, but the testimony, or I'm sorry, the, I think it's, it's what the ICIG report that will be shown to the House Oversight Committee with Tim Burchett and the UFO caucus and, and whatnot. I think that'll be very, very interesting to see what the congressional reaction will be following this ICIG report. My prediction, uh, being the ghost of UFO future, is that this IC, ICIG report will be pretty damning. And I think that a lot of the folks in Congress that will uh, be privy to seeing this, and hopefully it's quite a bit, I have no idea how much of it is classified and therefore how much, well, I mean, we know a lot of it's going to be classified, but in terms of what, what Congress, or folks from Congress are allowed to see with their particular clearances, I hope it's significant. 
uh, and also as well, uh, you know, I would hope that they would be given uh, one-time read-ins that would allow them to view this. Another thing I would like to point out as well with this is uh, Congressman Tim Burchett has extended the invitation for senators to come and, and, and be a part of this briefing. And I think it will be very telling to see what senators actually do show up and what senators do not. The third thing that I think could definitely be down the road, uh, speaking as uh, the ghost of UFO future, is hopefully a rejiggered uh, UAP Disclosure Act. So now that we had uh, the, the past UAP Disclosure Act that was derailed by some uh, dirty, uh, dirty congressmen, like, um, well, I'm not gonna say <coughs> Mike Turner. Um, and now that we've, we've had that happen, I, my thinking is that Senator Schumer and others that were part of writing that legislation will now understand what the limits are of that legislation. And my guess is that it probably had a lot to do with the eminent domain issue. And hopefully they take a second pass and, and come up with a second version of this that they propose or that, that they, uh, that they put in for the upcoming uh, National Defense Authorization Act. And fourthly, who knows? Uh, I, I'm not real sure, but I, I do think that we have some things to look forward to. I do think that, that the, um, the whistleblowers are not going to go away quietly and be shut down. Uh, I predict that David Grush has more work, uh, good work he will be doing in addition to the op-ed that he will be publishing somewhere. So I think that we have a lot of really great things to look forward to in 2024. Yeah, absolutely. All, all, all really good points there. Um, definitely worth considering for what we might see play out. And I, I think like you were saying about the fourth point is that you never quite know what's going to come out of left field in this topic. There were certainly a few things that obviously we had an inkling of, of what might be coming up with some of these revelations we've seen with Grush coming forward and all the rest of it. But we just never right. quite know, do we? There could be something else that nobody's predicted <laughs> that could change the whole landscape, you know? Exactly. I mean, and, and Frank, if you think back to just a few years ago, I think that if... if Back then, we would have never imagined the amount of progress that has been made in, in just the past year alone, let alone the past few years. So if that, if that trend continues, which I feel confident that it will, um, and I forgot to mention too, also the Soul Foundation, they are going to be doing incredible work. I predict that the uh, Soul videos will be uh, coming out in the new year. And I, I just I feel really good that Dr. Gary Nolan and uh, David Grush and all of the other people that are supporting Soul or are part of it, they are going to have a very productive role to play in all of this. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think that'll be that'll be great to see those videos. I know they've been hotly anticipated as well by by many folks ever since the uh, the the event took place. So that'll be a, a great thing when we we finally get to see those. Another point as well that you that you mentioned in there was um, this legislation that we were also excited about and optimistic about, um, sort of being torn to pieces essentially, uh, is really going to strengthen the resolve of of those who've been you know pushing for transparency, even though it was. I think pretty undeniably a, a setback. You know, it, it could set the scene for 
even more carefully constructed legislation in the, in the future, perhaps getting at a lot of the same things, but you know, wording tweaked to kind of give less room to sort of wriggle out uh, of the requirements there. And, you know, uh, could it also perhaps give more folks the kind of the push to come forward with, with what they know as well, you know, you, the whistleblowers and perhaps even those with, with first-hand experience and, and knowledge of the direct knowledge of, of the legacy programs and things like that, perhaps. So what, what do you anticipate from, from that side of things in terms of, you know, other whistleblowers? We hear a lot, don't we, about first-hand whistleblowers and, and things of that nature. Um, what, what are your thoughts on what, what we might see in that area? You know, that, that is, that's a really good question, Frank. The issue, of course, is whistleblowers have to be very careful uh, so as not to uh, cross any red lines that would violate their NDA and land them in the slammer. No one wants, no one wants that. The other, the other issue, too, with whistleblowers is the ones that have filed PPD-19s. And uh, this was something that uh, we personally warned uh, people in Congress back in April that this would be happening and that they would be bypassing Arrow altogether. The other issue that that I think will be the case with many whistleblowers is they are going to be reticent to do anything that could possibly jeopardize their ICIG investigation. So it's it's a little bit sticky. However, what I would say is that I would say that whistleblowers as a as a general note, are likely very upset and uh, very disappointed with uh, what uh, Mike Turner and his uh, buddies at Lockheed Martin managed to do, which was get that, really get, uh, gut the legislation. So that in and of itself, I think, is a powerful motivator for a lot of these folks to come forward, maybe and not the way that we think they might, maybe they do, but I would say that when these folks kind of realize that things are not going at the pace or at the, at the trajectory that they wish, that that will certainly motivate them to consider coming forward in some way, uh, much more so than, than it would have been the case, let's say, had the UAP uh, Disclosure Act uh, had it been kept intact and had it had it passed, so yeah, I it's I'm not real sure, uh, but you know there are pluses and minuses. You know the other thing to consider as far as whistleblowers coming forward is if if I were them and I looked at how David Grush was treated, I'd have to really weigh whether it was worth it. I mean, for instance, you look at the fact that people from the intelligence community from the Pentagon leaked to a uh, reporter, uh, Ken Klippenstein, uh, private medical information in clear violation of, of HIPAA laws. Uh, so he had that. Then you've got these, uh, these uh, really nutty debunkers that basically said, oh, because he's on the autistic spectrum, he, he'll believe anything. All of this just kind of garbage uh, that was thrown at David Grush, and and in my opinion, he has weathered all of all of that being thrown at him with real, real, real class. But if you're from a, if you're a, if you're a whistleblower and you look at well, they they really obviously tried to make an example out of David Grush. Do I want to be made an example of as well? Now, my hope and my feeling is that these whistleblowers they are doing what they're doing out of duty to country and love of country. And I think that 
especially uh, since a lot of these folks are former and uh, government employees, either military, DOD or IC, that I think that in the end, they will probably come to the conclusion that something needs to be done to get this back on track. And my hope is that will, in addition to what they're doing with their, with their complaints, uh, with their PPD, PPD-19 whistleblower uh, protection filings, that they will also find a way to get stuff out. Remember, the UAP Disclosure Act, that was the cleanest, most controlled way for disclosure. It offered the most opportunity for a clean reconciliation for all the dirty deeds that the CIA and, and other elements of the government have done. It was the cleanest way out of the mess that, that the US government created for themselves 70 years ago. So now that they poo-pooed it, thanks to Mike Turner and, and his uh, buddies and, and whatever faction in Lockheed Martin that, that obviously didn't want this out, uh, it's all bets are off as far as what is going to happen next. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's um it's really thrown a, a bit of a, a cat amongst the pigeons, as we say, the events of the last uh, few weeks, and and I think the 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 reaction to these these events of the legislation being shredded and so on, um, it, it's still kind of brewing. We've not actually seen anything else, you know, happen yet. I think one of the 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 initial kind of uh, reactions to that. From um, from amongst the kind of pro transparency uh, side of things will be probably whatever ends up in in Grush's op ed, which is going to be very interesting because if I remember correctly, he said about a week ago that it will be in the next few weeks. I think was the time scale that he was talking about. So that should be sort of over the festive period, maybe a very um, early twenty twenty four thing. I think I. I, I uh, would say with confidence you're going to see it at uh, the beginning of January, right around then. Well, that will certainly be an interesting start to the year. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And in, in terms of the, um, the the people with more first-hand knowledge, um, I've been a little bit pessimistic might be a bit strong, but I'm, I'm certainly very aware of the extent of the pushback that people who come forward with information are going to be on the receiving end of, as you mentioned there, Grush as you know, obviously it in, in some ways have made an example of, of Grush because he's somebody who they really didn't want to come out. And this, the, the extent of information that he's been able to reveal, even on Joe Rogan mentioning Lockheed Martin specifically, and like even he was a bit surprised that he was, was able to do so and and so right. on and then the the pushback that he's got and, and some of the essentially dirty tricks type of tactics that has been used against him um you know is that gonna how, how is that going to actually affect things are, are people going to be even more convinced than ever that coming forward is the right thing and then that that becomes the point where it's a, it's a very difficult balance of how to come forward, who to come forward to, what to be, what's going to be revealed because of the because of the repercussions and so forth. Um, you know, or or is it going to be the case that people are going to see this and just think, actually, you know, I'm not I'm not going to go there. I don't want to deal with that. And you know, it's certainly going to be a fine balance, isn't it, for anybody with information? Um, you know deciding whether to come forward but certainly hopeful that we'll see some some interesting new information one way or another and of course the other thing is um the potential for leaks as well you know perhaps not kind of throwing open pandora's box to the public or anything but that you know people who have 
um, being frustrated by this, who've got access to information, do you think there's a possibility we might see some of that coming out through, you know, leaks and things? I would suspect that uh, people that have filed PPD 19s with the with the Inspector General, in a way, I think that there is a significant less chance that they would leak anything because what they would have put in their PPD 19 would likely be what they would want to leak publicly. In other words, mm. uh, uh, in the PPD 19, they're going to lay out every single piece of evidence that they think it constitutes material relevant or germane to their, uh, their, you know, their, their protected disclosure and that they're, that they are trying to make. So if these folks have, have filed, you know, say like, um, uh, whistleblower X has filed a PPD 19 with the inspector general, it has all of these facts in there it's going to be difficult, I think, if not possible, for that person to then turn around and put those same facts out in a um, uh, anonymous way without the inspector general being going and looking at it and going, well, wait a second, you're saying the same thing that is in this report. Mm -hmm. You filed this protected disclosure. Eh, what's going on? So if I were a whistleblower that has filed a PPD-19, I, my advice to that person would be to really think hard about that because the last thing you want to do, and David Grush has even spoken about this in the past, you, you don't want to say anything that is going to jeopardize the, the whistleblower case. So otherwise, there's kind of no point in doing it. It's, you're going to accomplish more good by having a, a successful PPD 19, uh, a successful ICIG case that rules in your favor rather than disclosing something on UFO Twitter that's going to be on UFO Twitter all of 12 hours and then mm -hmm. everybody's uh, moved on to, you know, Britney Spears uh, dancing around naked with a sword. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's where I'm a little bit hesitant to say that that anybody that is a whistleblower is going to come out with anything. Now, folks that have not filed PPD-19s, I, I would say go for it. Uh, put everything out that you can that is not going to cross the red line and have OSI knocking on your door um, because I do think some stuff needs to come out for sure. It's just who does it and how it's done. It's, it's tricky, but at the end of the day, whistleblowers that have filed PPD 19s. My advice uh, to you, if you are watching, is to really sit and consider whether disclosing something publicly is going to jeopardize your case with the inspector general. I would probably suggest you not, but that's just me. I'm not a whistleblower. So, well, um, yeah, very good, very good points. And, and my advice actually to anybody listening is to go and check out the good trouble show on YouTube with Matt. Some excellent, thank you. Recently you've had some absolute bangers in terms of interviews, some really, really fascinating uh, guests and, uh, hopefully long may it continue looking forward to many more of those in the new year. Thank you. And, and I do have one last uh, prediction. I gave you four predictions. There's actually a fifth oh. that I, I am confident is going to come true. Um, and I think it will probably anger a lot of people in the Pentagon, uh, especially like Ronald Moultrie 
And uh, any uh, Rhonda Moultrie in, in particular, sorry, knocking my camera, uh, managing the information and perception management office. My fifth, predict fifth prediction for 2024 is that Mick West is no longer is going to dump the debunking thing and go back to making video games. <laughs> Sorry, Ron, you're losing an asset. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, well, if, at least if he goes back into making another Tony Hawk sequel or something like that, which I think was one of his original games, that, that maybe we'll get a good game out of it, you know? So we'll see how, yeah. how it goes. Maybe, yeah, maybe he'll do uh, 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 David Grush part one and uh, Dave Grush is uh, doing skateboard tricks. Who knows? But yeah, I, I, Mick will be going back to the, the video game. Maybe business. that's what he should do, you know? Instead of Tony yeah. Hawk's pro skater, Dave Fravers pro tic-tac rider or something like that it could actually be there yeah, maybe there's something in that <laughs> i yeah no i think so mick if if you're watching if you make the jump to a video game developer you are welcome to come on the on the good trouble show and we will promote your game for you there we go um dave fravers tic-tac rider release <laughs> next right. christmas well all i love to say uh, matt is is thanks once again um it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure as always i hope you keep up the good work you've been doing and uh have thank a you. very merry christmas and uh, all the best for the new year frank thank thanks again for having me we are huge uh, you're you're like number uh, on the very top i won't say number one number two i don't want to uh rank anybody but you're at the top of my list as in terms of shows that i listen to you listen to you guys really do fantastic well thought out work and Merry Christmas to you and your family and your viewers and look forward to 2024. Great. Thanks again. So there we have it. I think safe to say um, we, we had our ghosts put forward a very strong argument there uh, to Mr. Ron to logical um, for, you know, why this is something that we should definitely be paying attention to uh, the very least. And, um, just in case anybody was wondering, by the way, um, Ron to logical. Um, in, just in case you didn't catch that and you're still here at this point, you you must obviously be a hardcore listener of the show to be still here, um, past the one hour mark even. And um, as I always say, it's either that or you're falling asleep while you're listening to it, which um, I don't know. Um, sweet dreams, <laughs> if that's the case. But Ron to logical is a play on words. Um, uh, uh, actually, uh, Dave is the one responsible for for this uh, this particular little um, comedy turn here, and uh, it, it refers to ontological shock, which is the uh, the, the shock that you uh, actually uh, would experience when your whole worldview um, is is shaken to the foundations by something like witnessing a UFO or having an experience with any kind of anomalous um, object. So. Um, yeah, and honestly, just doing this has really made me think, um, you know, I always really appreciate the connections with some of these fascinating people. Um, obviously, everybody will know Dave from, from being a regular uh, co-host of the show. We've done many, many shows together at this point. Um, Matt, obviously, fantastic. Um, you know, got his own show. Uh, had some absolute amazing bombshell interviews this year. Really recommend checking out Matt's YouTube channel. Uh, fantastic. And always, always a sharp-dressed individual as well. Um, which is great great to see uh, that little attention to detail there and, and of course Graham Rendell a phenomenal author if you want to check out somebody who really knows the stuff about those historic cases which are obviously extremely fascinating because there wasn't drones back then you can't explain it away as drones or adversarial tech because if those kind of objects were indeed doing the things that they're 
you know, um, that they're alleged to have done, um, because of course we don't have video footage or anything of uh, of these objects because there just simply wasn't the capability to even video them from from um, you know from from the majority of the airplanes that were in operation at that time. Of course there were cameras, but certainly not something you could whip out of your phone like you can nowadays. Um, so those a lot of those kind of uh explanations with those historic cases you know drones adversarial technology they just don't stand up if, if they are indeed uh, or if they were indeed doing the the things that they, that they supposedly did so there we have it fascinating um to think about where we're going in 2024 i think it's definitely safe to say that this has been a, a massive moment of upheaval in the topic over the course of the last you know what six weeks or so and um I didn't expect it. I'll be honest. I, I thought that this legislation was probably going to go through. Um, those who are not in favour of transparency would go ahead and, and do whatever they can to wriggle out of the requirements of the legislation, but it would go through as it has done in previous years. As it turns out, that's not what happened. The legislation got absolutely shredded and torn to ribbons. And obviously I've been into quite a bit of detail about the specific things that were that were lost, basically, in, in, this, uh, in this last few weeks. But as I say, the interesting thing now is going to be the reaction to that happening. Because let, let's just think about it for a second. If you're Dave David Grush, okay, which is, I would say, arguably the biggest story of this year. If you are David Grush and you have seen the things that you've seen, you've interviewed 40 witnesses, you know, high top level security clearances people who are in extremely senior positions within the military and the intelligence community you've interviewed 40 of these people you have given uh, an actual list of cooperative and uncooperative uh, uh, cooperative and hostile witnesses i believe is the term that you used you've given these lists to the inspector general there are active investigations going on at this moment in time about the existence of illegal crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs which have been operating outside of the legal framework for these programs to operate and there are reprisals and intimidation for anybody who speaks out against these these programs and potential you know collaboration questionable legal uh you know side of things in terms of the collaboration that, that's going on with defense contractors and things like that if you're you're David Grush and you've come out and you've you've essentially blown the whistle on on what's going on there and and you've gone through every single you know legal channel available to you to get this information out to the public in a responsible way and the legislation that was proposed was was designed to be a responsible roll out of, of some of the information in a way that doesn't harm national security and and there's been this push for information to come out in a responsible way you know that is clear public interest let's get the information out and answer questions in a way that that you know that, that that's not going to be damaging to national security and and to uh, to to anyone to minimize the harm that a disclosure could cause if you're David Grush and you've been pushing for that and you've done everything the right way and then you see things like this happening, you're not just going to walk away from it. There's going to be a hardening, of a strengthening of the resolve from these types of individuals. And what form that takes is going to be extremely interesting. Now, we heard from Matt there and 
you know word on the street if you like uh, as well um things that i've heard in the background is that this grush this grush op-ed piece uh it's essentially an article um I, I think it's being referred to as an opinion piece because he can't be seen in any way to be officially bringing this out as a result of his past positions that he's held and so on but this is going to be an opinion piece, but I would suggest that there may be some opinions which are actually quite factual in their origin. Um, that piece is going to be forthcoming, uh, very early part of 2024, and that's going to be one hell of a way to kick off the new year with a bang, isn't it? So, And, and I think Dave Grush is an example of this, but a lot of the people who are on the side of, of transparency, reasonable, rational... Um, transparency in a way that that is a sensible way to do it without doing anything silly and damaging national security there's going to be a fight back in 2024 um all of the politicians all of the the key figures who used to be insiders that have that have we've heard from over the course of the last few years we're going to hear a lot more from and as i mentioned when i was talking to matt i think the response to the unprecedented pushback from the the secret keepers if you will the response has not fully been, you know, started to be rolled out yet. If Lou Elizondo is anything to go by, he insists that there's already a plan B, already a plan C. So they've probably got some ideas of what any response might look like, but we've not started to really see that uh, come into force yet. So 2024 seems to be, you know, the year of the uh, the fight back against the secret keepers so that'd be very very interesting but as i say it's not just as straightforward as a whistleblower coming out and saying i worked on a saucer for example this is the balance that we have to think about look what's happened to grush look what the barriers are for people who want to come forward it's really really tricky legally it's tricky from just the point of view of people's personal reputations it's very difficult and when I've talked about this, I've had quite a few messages off people saying why you're so pessimistic about first-hand whistleblowers coming out and that kind of thing. You know, it's not that I don't want to see that because the thing I would like to see more than anything else in terms of the topic at the moment is a first-hand uh, whistleblower coming out ideally going on joe rogan for two and a half hours and talking about everything but we just also have to sort of temper that a little bit with the reality of are we going to really see that um because how i mean like a lot of people have messaged me and said things along the lines of we are going to see first-time whistleblowers which i understand look i, I really want to see first-time whistleblowers too but my question is and i'd be actually really interested to hear from people how they think that that could play out because don't forget, first-hand whistleblowers have already been to Congress. They've been briefing congressional committees. Um, you know, there's protected disclosures being given by a lot of these people who've got first-hand experience. All of the people that Dave Grush has interviewed, the 40 witnesses that he's talked about, essentially they have already come forward, but not, not publicly, because that therein lies the problem. As soon as you start thinking about going on the news, going on a podcast what you're doing then is you're revealing classified information that you have signed a document an nda which says that you will never discuss what you've witnessed as part of the program you were read into as soon as you start to reveal any of that you are then making yourself legally liable for prosecution an extremely um extremely significant um you know repercussions legally for you if you if you do that so that is the the issue are we going to see people with first-hand information talking about 
that first-hand information to the relevant congressional committee or you know representatives in a in a secure information facility with everybody's got the correct clearances and and that kind of thing we're going to see that yeah absolutely i think we're definitely going to see that and that's already happened but the big question is are we going to see people able to go public with their information now a couple of other things on that though is that Lukatsky um, Jim Lukatsky who was the director of the ORSAP program um, which let's remember the absolute mind blowing statements that he's made about uh, uh, directly confirming the fact that the government has got uh, a, a, a vehicle of non-human origin have managed to gain access to the interior add, add that up with what Grush has said about again the same thing that we have multiple I think he said um, around about a dozen vehicles several of them intact fully intact and there were biological remains inside those vehicles as well pilots non-human you know beings you know very interesting to think what david grush and lakatsky are going to be able to follow up on in terms of giving more information last time lakatsky had spoken about the fact that you know he was aware of the fact that these things existed and that, that we'd gained access uh, or that people had gained access to the interior he said that he was also going to try to get more information cleared via dopsa to be released that's definitely one to keep an eye on dave grush has also been pushing for further statements to be authorized for for release through dopsa as well and whatever comes out in that op-ed piece that's going to be very interesting as well so those are two key areas that me personally i've got my eye on and i think that's going to be really interesting to see and also let's not forget about luella zondo's mythical at this stage book luella zondo is still having his book um cleared through dopsa so that could be another very interesting area to keep an eye on i wouldn't imagine we'll see that until late summer i don't know that's just a random uh, guess really i've not heard anything along that lines but knowing how long these things take and once the once the actual thing gets cleared for publication then they've got to go through the whole release process with the publisher it's not going to be quick i personally would guess round about summer but you know it certainly looks likely that it will happen in 2024 so that's another there's there's a lot of key very interesting areas to watch out for another one actually that just sprang to mind is james fox has got a new documentary which he's been working on and editing, which is due, I think he said spring 2024, so spring, summer. So that's going to be another one. And there's been suggestions as well from James Fox that that includes some people we've not heard from before. And if James Fox's general quality of work is anything to go by, that will be a, a, a really good watch. And I've really enjoyed his last few films, so I'm very much looking forward to watching that one when it eventually comes out. Rest assured, we will be talking about it on the podcast um, so there we are we've come to the end of the festive episode 2023 um, it's funny because I've talked about doing this episode all year and <laughs> it feels a bit weird that we've now finished it um, but I hope I hope folks have enjoyed it uh, I know I got a few messages from people when I had my break in the summer um, saying oh, what about the Christmas episode and I was thinking oh, I'll definitely be back for that one and I'm very glad that I am back for it and hope folks have enjoyed listening um, plenty more podcasts to come in 2024 I'm really interested to see where all this goes and of course there's various other things to keep an eye on as well in terms of technology advancing at a rate that's just unbelievable you know AI 
it's like every week there seems to be another announcement about AI can now do this and how is that going to play into everything with UFOs? You know, if we start using AI as an analysis tool, I remember, um, I can't even remember when it was actually, but quite a long time ago now, we were talking about how David Marler is putting together the biggest archive of uh, sighting reports and, and documents about UFOs. Uh, I think that's ever existed. It's certainly a huge one. Um, and I was saying that if that does get digitized, bearing in mind they would need significant funding to digitize it, what could AI do in terms of analyzing a massive database of digitized UFO reports and documents? You know, in terms of AI spotting trends and things within the the documents that are there, so we're going to see so many of these kinds of things start to happen over the next year and beyond. Um, are we going to see President Biden announce disclosure to the public in mid January? No, uh, unfortunately, I don't think we are. Uh, but are we going to see some very interesting developments and and get some some more? You know, indications of, of what the real answers to these big questions may be? I think so. I mean, look at what's happened in 2023. An absolutely unbelievable year to be following this topic. So if you've been along for the ride, it's been great to have you. Not just for this episode, but for the whole year. And I hope wherever you are, again, I always love hearing from people where where, where folks are and where they listen to the pod. And and I uh, hope everybody who's been in touch to tell me where you listen to the pod, I hope you're, you're now listening from uh, hopefully the comfort of your own home or a relative's home and uh, you're wearing some kind of festive attire, perhaps with a festive beverage in hand. And um, I hope you have a great time uh, over the festive period and, uh, you know, uh, manage to spend some some time recuperating from the the hassles and stresses of your day-to-day life and then can attack 2024 head-on with renewed vigour. And, um, yeah, so all the best to everybody. Merry Christmas um, if you celebrate Christmas and I hope you have a good festive break if you don't celebrate Christmas. really appreciate everybody who supports the pod and, and enjoys listening. Uh, it's great to be to be doing the podcast. I, I really love doing it, and um, it's been a, it's been a great privilege to do this Christmas episode once again. So um, I can now start looking forward to the festive episode of two thousand and twenty four. I've got twelve months to prepare for it, and uh, until next time, take it easy, stay curious, Merry Christmas, and I'll catch you in the next episode. You have a good podcast. podcast.